Tell you what, why don't you all stand with me as we read our passage for this morning? Position of reverence and gratitude. We are still in the book of 1 Peter, and I'm going to start this morning in verse 13. I'm going to recess backward a bit. Our verses this morning are 20 and 21, but I'm going to start in 13. If you'd like to read along. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. And so, Father, we ask you this morning as we approach your word, because we are a needy people, that you would help us, Father, that you would help us to understand the truth, that you would help us to take honest evaluation of ourself that your word would have a sanctifying effect on our hearts and in our minds, in our conduct, that Christ would be exalted in all things to the glory of the Father. Amen. You can be seated. So hope is a critical part of everyone's life. We all need hope, right? Generally, everyone is living with a hope in something. And so necessary is this sense of hope that all people that are without hope, there's, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's depression. Without a hope, a person, is com- they just completely fall apart. And it's, it's hard to have determination to even keep moving forward. The dictionary, it defines hope in this way. It says, it is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. It's a feeling of trust that something I want is going to happen or will happen or, or something I want to be the end result is going to eventually exist. It's... It's a comfort in a distress, an expectation that everything's going to be the way I like it to be or the way I think it should be. It's an expectation of good for us personally. But hope in anything in this world is deceptive and uncertain. Because 
It's completely subject to all of our earthly experiences and even to our own fleshly expectations. At best, the world's hopes are projections of the future that are completely subject to things here on the earth that we have no control of. Nothing is certain, and life is full of experiences that have a tendency to extinguish our hopes, really. In hope, we calculate our experiences in this world, and we plan our efforts, but that kind of hope can only provide a a false sense of security at best. And that's because we're fixing our hopes upon things that we think we control or influence when these things they don't really work out, and, and we're trying to create another means of hope, we don't have control. So we, we start out when we're young. Many of you can remember this. We start out with our hopes and dreams, and we think the world is ours for the taking. There's a confident expectation that all of our plans will provide us success and satisfaction. We have a lot of options and opportunities We see this in our graduation from high school and our early marriage. and We have opportunities, and we think it's all going to make us content. At least that's our hope. But as we pursue these hopes, reality strikes, and we are often beaten down and left without hope. Many people, particularly in this country, they believe that financial security is really the basis of our hope. Be satisfied if we have a good job, have a good savings, perhaps good investments. Many find hope in future retirement plans, and everything just seems to revolve around that. In Ecclesiastes 5, 13 through 17, Solomon says this. He says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. So he he blows it all. I'm going to make a lot of money and poof, it's all gone. And guess what? And he is a father of a son. And he has nothing in his hand. Not only has he lost everything, but he has a child and he can't support it. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing from his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, he shall go. And when what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. That's the end of our hopes in financial gain. Many place their hopes in family and friends and relationships, feeling like they'll always be there and they'll always be satisfying. But our world, guys, is completely filled with broken and severed relationships. Our society also also likes to look to government. If only we had the right person in office, everything would be great. But governments run by corrupt humanity will never provide stable, lasting hope. It doesn't exist. And depending on which candidate wins, half of the population, all their hope turns to apoplexy, and they're all angry and frustrated and hopeless. 
There's so many things that people try to find hope in. You could make your own long list, but genuine hope totally eludes the population. Dreams fail, loved ones are lost, finances crash, relationships disintegrate, health can turn bad, everything in this life turns sour very quickly. And so as one thing fails after another, we keep turning to the next thing to try and establish some sort of hope, a sense of hope. Things will get better, right? Our world has filled us with broken where our world is filled with the broken, the hopeless, and with many who are trying to establish hope somehow in something. So whether Peter is writing this epistle to prepare the believers in his time for persecution, or they were actually in the midst of it at the time, suffering is a noticeable thread throughout the book of 1 Peter. Really, we are so far detached, too, really, from this kind of suffering, this kind of loss that was experienced in the early church. Loss of incomes, loss of property, beatings, even loss of life. Everything that a person could place their hope in in this world was removed. It was destroyed. It was gone. We're not talking minor issues here. Can this person still have hope when they lose everything, when they suffer the loss, even loss in this life? Can can a person have hope? And Peter says, yes, a definite yes. And the hope that he points out should have a profound impact on all of our lives, all of us here. Look at verse 21. Who, which is a reference to us who believe, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is really a central message of Peter's epistle. In fact, it's really a central message of the gospel, the central message of the New Testament, the Old Testament, that God has sent Jesus Christ so that we might place all our faith and hope in God. We don't don't have to look for something in this world to give us hope, and we don't have to create a circumstance to try to keep that hope alive. God chose this hope for you, and it's yours. He's determined a permanent hope for you, and this is not hope in something that is subjective or something that can change our hope and fail or destroy our hope. This hope can't be taken. It can't be lost. God does not change like our circumstances change in this world. He's the one thing in all of reality that is absolute, that is fixed, that is immovable. It can't change. We don't have to look forward with a desire that things just might work out, that something might please us. Our hope is in something that is so fixed so determined that even if everything in this life fails, it still is preeminent in our hearts. It remains. And all of this, guys, has been freely given to us by God through the person of Jesus Christ. The Father has made the Son preeminent. He is the preeminent one 
and all of our hope, as we'll see here. So the first thing I want you to look at in the passage, you need to see the significance of what it says in verse 20, that he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown. He was known beforehand. He was predetermined before the foundation of the world. You understand that the sacrifice of Christ and the shedding of his precious blood was not a plan B. It wasn't something he worked out later on. God was not reacting to your sin and your corruption and trying to figure out what is he going to do. Jesus was not a plan hatched in reaction to the fall. He was not just trying to salvage something out of humanity after we messed everything up. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. World here is cosmos. It it means the created order. God didn't create matter and let it go and it just evolved and, and it just created something. No. God created exactly what he wanted and it accomplished exactly what he wanted. It was ordered. It was structured. And before everything was created, the incarnate Son of God was already known and predetermined. So what existed before the creation? Eternity? God? When there was nothing but the triune God, God knew Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who came into the world, who lived for the glory of the Father, who died for our transgressions, and who was raised for our justification. He was known before the world was created. The Son of God, who was chosen by the Father to be our Redeemer before anything was created. So God determined this from eternity. When speaking of the Messiah, God said this through the prophet Isaiah. He said, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. God was not reacting. He was planning. He was determining. On the day of Pentecost, this is a powerful passage. Day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching to uh, the crowd on Temple Mount. He says, he cries out to these men. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was no victim of circumstances. Wicked men placed their hands on the glorious Son of God, and they put the Son of God to death by means of crucifixion for the benefit, or for our benefit and for God's glory. You're not a plan B. You were always God's plan A. That's the point. You were his will. God is ultimately about glorifying his character and his nature, yet his 
method of manifesting his glory was in creating everything so that you would be redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Do you get that? His life and work were known by God before the fall, not because of it. Your salvation is secure because God determined these things before anything existed. That's just astounding to think about. Listen to Paul rejoicing in the opening of Ephesians. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So what kind of motivation, what kind of hope should reside in us when God has sent his only son and predetermined that before the foundation of the world? What kind of hope should we sense when God has always loved us, always loved us in this way? And he was always going to redeem us. It wasn't a plan B. That was the plan all along. That his intent all along was to make us children. You you could honestly say that God created everything so that you would be united to him forever in a perfect, loving, blissful relationship. The fact that you became a child of God was not an accident. It wasn't just a random thing. He wanted you in this perfect relationship planned before the creation of the world that Jesus Christ, he purchased you with his precious blood as described in verse 19 earlier in in our chapter. God has always wanted our faith and hope to rest in him. And this Christ was always intended to redeem you even before the foundation of the world. And then he continues in verse 20. He says, but he he was made manifest in the last times for your sake. He was manifest for your sake. He was foreknown before the creation. God knew it all. He intended it all. But he has now made it manifest for you, for your sake. Christ is manifest. Look back at verse 10. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. You, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It would be more understandable for us to struggle with our faith and our hope if we didn't have a clue what was going on, if we didn't know who the Messiah was, or we didn't understand what he was doing. It would be more understandable for it to be foggy to us and to be really uh, have a loss of hope. 
but it has now been made manifest. Manifest. It's been made visible. It's been revealed. It wasn't before, but now God has made it visible. The fullness of God's manifestation in the person of Christ, the full revelation, it's been revealed. The beginning of Hebrews says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, God has now manifest everything to us. But even with having the full manifestation of God before the disciples, you remember Jesus was right there with them. They, they had the full manifestation. They still struggled, didn't they? They struggled really to understand everything. They were with Jesus every day, all day. They watched all that he did. They listened to all his preaching. They listened to all his teaching. They saw him instruct people and deal with people all day long. But they still didn't get it. They didn't understand. Peter knows this because he was there. You understand? He was one of those that was sitting there struggling, trying to figure it out and respond correctly. But Jesus spelled it all out for them after his resurrection, didn't he? You remember the road to Emmaus? Jesus walking along with these two men. And they said to Jesus, but we had hoped that this was the one to redeem Israel. We had hope until Jesus was betrayed and crucified, but oh, we don't have any hope anymore. And Jesus said to them, oh, foolish ones, oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, or interpreted to them all the scriptures and things concerning himself. Jesus had to reveal it to them. He had to explain it. He had to walk through the scriptures and spell it all out because we're so weak. Later in that same chapter, this is the last chapter of Luke, um, there's the Great Commission. And Jesus says to his disciples after his resurrection, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. He went through the scriptures and explained it all and said to them, Thus it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and uh, you are witnesses of these things. And Peter was there along with the other disciples. He was one of the witnesses. He was one of the witnesses of these events. Peter there was, was learning from Jesus right there just with the rest of them because they were thick-headed. They couldn't see it. And they needed him to explain it. But these men have now given that understanding to all of us. We have it written. We have the full revelation and understanding 
of who Jesus Christ was and what he was doing. The point is this. We don't have to struggle to see. We have a basis of hope and faith because we have it. There's no excuse. God God has manifested the entire plan, the fullness of salvation. And he's treated you like sons and daughters and given it to you. We're not in the dark. We understand everything that is necessary for us to know the fullness of faith and hope in God. It's right there. We have it. We are an incredibly blessed people who possess such tremendous hope. We have a full knowledge of salvation. Verse 20 says that Jesus Christ, quote, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last days for your sake, for the sake of you. Verse 21 says, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. It's through Jesus Christ that you believe. I, I can stand here and state with all confidence that if it were not for Jesus Christ, none of you would be here. Would you? Why? Why would you be here? Why would we gather? What would be the point? We wouldn't have no inclination to be here. Without Christ, there's no faith, no hope in God. There's no reason to meet. There's no reason to fellowship. There wouldn't have been any reason for this gathering at all. And there certainly would be no sense of lasting fixed hope. But Christ has come, and God's plans are manifest. And we believe because of him and through him. Jesus Christ is the means by which God brings all our faith and hope to rest in him. But the Father is also about glorifying the Son. I don't think it's any mistake that in verse 21, it highlights the resurrection and the glorification of Christ. But it points out that it's God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope would rest in him. Resurrection. Why why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ such an impactful thing upon our hope and our faith? Why, why is it so critical? Isn't it enough that Jesus died for our sin? The penalty's paid. God's no longer angry with us, right? Because all is good. Jesus died for our sin. It's interesting that Peter includes the resurrection here. I don't think it's any mistake. What's the re- what's, what does the resurrection add to the conversation here? I want to I talk about some of the reasons why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is critical to our salvation and why it causes us to have faith and hope in God. Because it's very fitting that Peter placed it here. First, did you know that Jesus was actually vindicated by the resurrection? Did you know that? Jesus Christ was declared to be the true Son of God, the Messiah. His resurrection from the dead proved that. There's no doubt that this one is the one and only Redeemer because it confirmed it by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' resurrection proved everything that he declared about himself and it vindicated and validated everything that he did and said. 
Our sin and guilt could not defeat him. He didn't remain in the grave. It could not keep him in the grave. He rose from the grave because he was and is the Son of God and was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Our faith and hope can rest in him because he has proved to be our Savior through his resurrection. And I want to read just quickly the beginning of our passage in Romans 1 that was just read here earlier. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now listen, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, period. End of story. He was declared to be the very Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection finalizes our justification. Couldn't have happened otherwise. It's, it's, it's literally, when, when Christ rose from the grave, it was like the strike of a gavel. Okay? You can think in your mind any of the highest courts in the land They don't compare to the court of high heaven. And when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, it was was like a strike from that gavel in the highest court that God the Father declares us just by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are just. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore our sins. He took the punishment for our guilt. But... When God the Father raised Jesus Christ, our Lord, from the dead, he was declaring Jesus' sacrifice to be acceptable, to be full payment for us, and resulting in our justification. It's complete. It's done. The gavel is struck. We now bear a righteous standing before God. That's an astounding thing. We are righteous like the very Son of God as we stand before God boldly. So Jesus' resurrection validated him, but it also justified us. Third, his resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. Jesus Christ was resurrected because he was the perfect, righteous Son of God. But what are we? Think about that. We've been justified through his resurrection. In Christ, we have become the perfect, righteous sons and daughters of God. That is who we are. You think the grave will hold you down? Do you think that God would sacrifice the Son of God, raise him from the dead, and then not raise us from the dead? Would he not do that? This is our faith and hope, guys. This is our faith and hope. We who have been inseparably bound to Christ, who have been made to bear his righteousness, who are now accounted as children of God, will be raised to life in the same way as Christ was. 
And that's why Jesus declares to his disciples, he says, yet a little while and the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you, you also will live. Paul said this to the Corinthians. He said, he who raised the Lord Jesus, that's our father, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is such a major factor in our faith and hope. Our faith and hope rest in God because Peter includes it here, and it is very fitting. But he gives us another reason for our hope in God, that he gave Christ glory. He gave Christ glory. Jesus Christ is now glorified. The glory that Jesus shares with the Father is not a new thing. Do you ever think about that? It's not a new thing. He's always had that glory. He shared glory with the Father long before he took on flesh. When he came to the earth, when he took upon himself the incarnation, he divested himself of all the glory, honor, and privileges associated with being in, in, a, in an exalted place in heaven. He literally set those aside for our benefit. But when he completed everything that the Father had him to complete and gave him to accomplish, he is again exalted to the highest place right next to the Father. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, the Father has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We're, those of us who have been redeemed by him are also bound to him forever. You understand that? He's in an exalted position, but he also bears flesh in an inseparable binding with us. It's a permanent thing. He's our ultimate high priest and mediator of the new covenant, as we saw in Hebrews. And he remains that way to this day. He not only secures our place with him in heaven, where he has prepared a place for us, but Jesus is our permanent mediator. Where the high priest, you remember the high priest used to go into the Holy of Holies, and he would make an atonement once a year, it happened every year, year after year. He went into the holy place. Jesus sits in the holiest of places, declaring that we are both innocent and righteous. And that never ends. We are declared innocent and righteous on a continuous basis. And he is our forever mediator. And because he is exalted, our future is also guaranteed. We are his co-heirs. And one day we will be resurrected and we will be in a glorified state with him. So he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's our passage. These are astounding truths, aren't they? They're amazing. But notice again that God the Father is initiating everything and God the Son is fulfilling it for the sake of you. And the movement, the movement of these two verses is, is amazing as well. It goes from eternity past to the current era, and then it goes to eternity future. It looks at the whole thing, the full manifestation of what God is doing. God is intimately and inseparably tied to us through the Son of God and has granted to us to share in His glory, in His eternal inheritance, and to partake in an intimate fellowship with the Father through Christ. It's been granted to us to have every spiritual blessing in Christ. It was never an afterthought for God. It was never going to. Uh, it was never going to fail because the Father had willed it from all of eternity. These things are fixed. And what should this create in us? Astounding, immovable, unshakable faith and hope in God, shouldn't it? I mean, should, shouldn't that be what it results in? It should be a constant thing in our lives. We do not hope as the world hopes by looking to the future and wishing that something might work out. Our hope is in God. And, and so again, it's, it's a fixed assurance of what God has done and will do. There's no changing it. Look at his instruction. Go back to verse 3. I want to review the introduction to the book of 1 Peter. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. To what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How then should we live, guys? How unshakable should be our faith, and our hope. I want you to look down at verse 13. Right at the beginning of this section that we're in the middle of right now. Look at the introductory verse right there. Verse 13, it's a transition still attaching itself to that introduction and then moving on to what we're talking about now. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
But why is it that we struggle? I mean, in a practical sense, I mean, just being real with ourselves for a minute, why do we struggle to maintain a hope? I mean, that might be a complicated answer. Why might it be that we still lose hope, fall into depression, find ourselves gripped with fear, sometimes losing the will to even want to move on? It seems like that would be just totally out of place. It seems like with this kind of hope, the, we couldn't be shaken. It's a legitimate question. What, why is it we, we always succumb? Can I suggest that we often lose hope because we're not doing what it just suggested in verse 13? Setting our hope or fixing our hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We, we fail to fix it there. I don't, I don't see this as a one-time action. This is a continual action. It's a legitimate question. God has given various means of grace that help us to fix our hope in Christ. You hear him preached up here all the time. Pastor Josh is so gracious to remind us constantly of these things, imploring you to partake in these things to help continually fix your faith and hope in God. You could probably list these yourself. His word, prayer, the preaching of the word, continual fellowship with the saints, our brothers and sisters, our worship together, our communion together, our life together. These, these things are all graciously given to us by God. And we need them. We need them. And that is why they're so often encouraged by the pastor. But there's a tendency to have those things around us in case we need them instead of because we need them. You understand what I'm saying? I, I have the church there in case I need it, or if I have time, rather than it has to have a preeminent place in my life because I need this continually. I need this spiritual life. I need to hang on these things. I need to envelop myself in them, immerse myself. We are a new people. I encourage you to pursue these things because we are a new people with a new identity. We are children of the Father. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ and brothers and sisters. We are children of the Father. And those identities are inextricably tied to our destiny. It's irremovable. And, and knowing all this while looking forward to the grace that will be when Christ returns should produce certain behaviors in our life as well. It all goes along with this section of 1 Peter that we're in right now, and you're going to see this continue as we go on. This faith and hope that we have in God that is so astounding 
it should motivate our holiness as we saw last week. Be holy for I am holy. It should motivate a zealous love for one another, which we'll see coming up very shortly. It should motivate a yearning to grow in our new spiritual life in Christ. All these things are what results when we continually fix our hope in Christ. These things are an automatic. So I want to give you some last words. Hope in God. So Father, we ask you because we are a fickle people. Every one of us struggles with these things, Father. What glories you have given to us in Christ. So astounding, so deep and so rich. Father, these these kind of truths, these thoughts should completely crush all fear, anxiety, depression. Father, we have a hope that is an anticipation of what is already ours. But Father, we confess to you, we have a hard time walking in that. We need you. Lord, help us to prioritize rightly, setting our hearts completely on this hope, fixing our lives on those things that will nurture that hope. It will also motivate us to act like the children that you have made us to be. And we pray all these things in Christ's name.